This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to another edition of Backstage Chicago. And today we are in the beautiful Symphony Center along Michigan Avenue, specifically across from the beautiful, amazing, magical Orchestra Hall. We're sitting into uh, in the Granger Ballroom, which is somewhere I've never been. And uh, that's why we do this podcast. We bring you into hidden treasures, places maybe you haven't been. And joining me today is Bill Bookman and Max Ramey. Long-time musicians here, and uh, I think it's so fascinating to talk to folks who've been involved with the, sh- the CSO, and I know both of you have been here many decades. First of all, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, first of all. You play the viola? That's me. You are the viola. Yes. <laughs> the radio, you can't see where you're looking. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, my name is, as you said, Max Ramey, and I've, I play the viola, and I've been in the orchestra, well... Uh, the great George Schulte hired me in 1984, so I'm, oh. I'm closing in on 40 years. It, wow. It just flies by. Amazing. So were you a musician as a kid? Can you take me back to how oh, you got yeah. involved in music? Um, I grew up in Detroit, and my um, brother, who's eight years older than I am, Fred, was a cellist. He still is a cellist, wonderful cellist. And I can't remember a time before I was listening to him play the cello, and it has always fascinated me. And I started out taking piano lessons, and I took up the viola when I was, I guess, about eight or nine. And there was really nothing else in my life that I really ever wanted to do with the same passion as I had with with music. And um, I had, my parents loved classical music. It was always playing in the house, and it just became something that I just wanted to devote my life to. And I just feel so grateful that I can do something and make my way in life and make a livelihood up with something that I truly love. So what brought you to the CSO initially, other than the obvious? <laughs> well, I was a freelance musician in New York. Okay. And um, I realized what a precarious existence that was. And I thought that to really have a secure life, I had to associate with an institution like a, a, a university, perhaps, or an orchestra. And I um, just decided that I'd rather play than teach full-time. And so I started assiduously um, learning the repertoire that is required and taking auditions. And I was very fortunate that I had a really good day when I was auditioning for the Chicago <laughs> Symphony, and George Holtie hired me. Amazing. Oh, Bill, you play the bassoon? That's right. Correct. 
People know what that is. Nobody knows dis- what a bassoon is. Actually, no. I think a lot of people can distinctly understand, hear it. You know, they can by hear it, ear. but they'll they'll but say, it's "Oh, is, to behold is that well. an oboe? What is that?" <laughs> and I say bassoon, and I get a lot of very quizzical looks on people's faces. Okay. So it's a member of the woodwind family. It's the the bass member of the woodwind family. It is a double reed instrument. It looks funny because. Um, it's so long that it has to get folded in half Amazing. in order for us to be able to hold it. And there's a metal tube coming out uh, that has a reed on the end of it, which is what we blow through. And then a bell that sticks up above our heads very often with a white ivory, originally now plastic hmm. ring. Um, so as a kid, did you start with that instrument I or didn't. did you pick So some? just okay. like Max, I started with piano. Piano is a very easy thing um, for young people to, to play initially. And where I grew up in Northeast Ohio, about an hour south of Cleveland, uh, the school system didn't have a string program. It had a wind program, so for woodwinds and brass and percussion. And the primary focus was to get a marching band on the football field, (laughs) Uh, a lot of uh, high school football in that part of the country. So um, I started out on the clarinet, and I eventually realized that playing the clarinet in a band is like playing the violin in an orchestra. There are a lot of other people playing the same part at the same time. And I was always sort of looking for something different. And I saw a fingering chart. They actually have pages that show the fingerings for instruments, how to finger each note. And I saw a fingering chart for the bassoon. And the bassoon is unusual in that it has a lot of extra keys. I think there are 23 keys on a standard bassoon, nine of them alone for the left-hand thumb, and another four or five for the right-hand thumb. So it's a very complex mechanism, and I was really intrigued by that. So... I went to summer camp at Interlochen in northern Michigan and learned to play the bassoon that summer and came back and told my junior high school band director, I can play the bassoon now. Can I play bassoon here? He said, sure. Um, so uh, ever since then, if you can play bassoon even halfway decently in high school, people want you to play bassoon because they're just there are a lot of clarinet players and a lot of flute players, but there aren't a lot of bassoon players. It has such a distinct sound though it is a really i mean the the instrument goes back to the the middle ages and the renaissance these double reed instruments that sound very kind of primitive and i think even frank zappa (laughs) is said to have been very fond of the bassoon because it reminds him of an age when all the instruments sounded that way (laughs) yes and how'd you get involved with the cso well so i had a different path from max's more quintessential uh, musician path i started out going to college for physics because I was very interested in science and math when I was in high school. And I have a sister who's very close in age to me who was very uh, avid uh, trombone player and very eager musician, and she went off to conservatory. And I, again, wanted to do something different. So I went to college for uh, physics. And during my time there, I started realizing I didn't have the aptitude for that that I had for music. I was playing in the college orchestra just for fun, and realized, hey, this is something I'm actually pretty good at. So then for grad school, I switched tracks and went to music school. Um, And then I won my first job in the orchestra in Dallas, Texas. And Dallas was a fun place to live, but Texas, uh, for anybody who spent time there, is kind of like a foreign country for someone who grew up in Ohio. And uh, there was a real lure for me to get back up to the Great Lakes. So then I auditioned during my first season in Dallas. I auditioned to come to Chicago and won that audition back in 1991. So I've been wow. here uh, for almost 30 years now. I so, have to say, yeah. um, you have that analytical bent with your physics background, 
And I love the story that the complexity of the fingering chart was what attracted you to the bassoon. That's, that's just perfect. <laughs> it really was. That's Bas- sexy. Yeah, and bassoon players are kind of a, a yeah. quirky bunch. Yeah. You have really interesting people sure. that take up that instrument. So we're sitting in an amazingly um, historic place, not only, but also the Chicago Symphony Orchestra is celebrating its 131st season. Tell me a little bit about the history that you know and how far we go back with this. I don't think a lot of people know that this has been around that long. Well, there was... um, Theodore Thomas was the founder of the Chicago Symphony. He was German by birth. He came to the United States, and he was a real evangelist for symphonic music. He not only founded the Chicago Symphony, I believe he founded the Cincinnati Orchestra, too. And he had his own orchestra that traveled all over the country. He would go to any little town anywhere, and um, he just thought, if I can just get people to listen to classical music, they'll understand how valuable and how beautiful it is. And um, he managed to make connections with some of the leading citizens in Chicago in the 1890s. There was sort of a dry run for it because there was the um, Columbian Exposition in 1893, and the great composer Dvorak came to Chicago to play his own music at that. Boy, I would have loved to have gone back in time uh-huh. and heard that. Yeah. And so the core of the orchestra was created for that. And in 1895, they actually established the orchestra. And at first, they played in the Auditorium Theater. And um, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a dork. I actually read Theodore Thomas's autobiography. And he talks about, well, the Auditorium Theater sounds great, but the problem is it's too big. Because he figured that with all those seats, no one would ever have to get a subscription. We'd have to get season tickets because they could always get a seat. And he said, we need a smaller hall so people get subscriptions. Because if you don't have a subscription, you never decide, this is the day I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And so he had this vision of creating Orchestra Hall, which I believe dates from 1890, uh, 1905. And um, so it was created here. I think it used to be a stable on Michigan Avenue. And at first, the orchestra was entirely German, like um Theodore Thomas. I think there was an Italian harp player and everybody else was German. And in fact, the rehearsals were held in the German language until World War I. They decided that wasn't a real good look. <laughs> um, so that's a little bit of the earlier history. There's a sad story associated with that, yes. too, that Theodore Thomas uh, got this hall built, uh, designed by Daniel Burnham, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And it was to open in 1905. And he was so eager to get the orchestra on stage and in the hall that he had the orchestra in here rehearsing while the plaster was still drying on the walls. And with all that extra moisture in the building, he ended up contracting pneumonia and died within a year of the hall opening. So it's amazing what he did, and it's so terrible that he didn't get to enjoy the legacy of his hard work. Yeah, these walls could talk, right? Yes. I mean, it's just amazing when you look around at the... uh, It's just so ornate and the... If you can just describe kind of what you guys see when you're here and when you're in Orchestra Hall really playing, it's probably an amazing experience from the stage as well. This space is a little bit like a mini Versailles without quite as much gilding, I suppose, but there are a lot of mirrors and beautiful crystal chandeliers hanging, big windows through which we can see the Art Institute directly across the street. Um, It it really takes you back to the early part of the last century. It's very elegant. He wanted this very reverent space for this music. And even in the renovation that we underwent back in the 1990s to transform Orchestra Hall into Symphony Center to expand the facilities, to add office space for staff, um, they really tried to keep the look. And the ballroom is completely unchanged from the way it was before. Uh, In the main concert hall, the primary difference is that the stage has been expanded to better accommodate 
a larger orchestra along with a chorus when we do really big works with orchestra and chorus together, uh, with permanent seating behind the orchestra that now even audience members can purchase tickets for and sit behind the orchestra and sort of watch from a musician's perspective. And if you've never done that, um, I encourage you to consider doing that sometime to try it, to see what it looks like from where we sit, because quite honestly, I always brag that the musicians in the orchestra have the best seats in the house. We look out on just a magnificent space of red seats and beautiful lights, and there is a lot more, um, I guess it's more silver that's in there rather than gold. Um, But the cream and silver and red theme in there is just beautiful. And I sit on that stage, where I sit on the stage, I'm basically facing straight out. And I just appreciate that view every time I'm sitting there. about 90 of you in your ensemble how many if we were at full strength there would be over a hundred of us wow to have the full orchestra playing um, at the same time. I suppose a standard performing complement for the orchestra is between 80 and 90 players. And we have extra musicians for the sake of work relief um, and for when we do need to to beef up the resources uh, as well. And you audition, right? And this is a full-time gig for you? Oh, yes. And how often do you practice and play? Is is it a a five-day-a-week thing? Is it seven-day? It depends, right? Typically, our week... You know, we're working when everybody else is off. So, uh, yeah, when I got married, it took my wife a little while to figure out that I'm basically never around on Saturday night. The life of a musician, uh, Yeah, that's, right? a, that's a tough sell. They say never marry a musician. Yeah. Nights and weekends. <laughs> yeah, but um, typically on Tuesday morning, we come to work and we rehearse. We have a, a new program. Uh, we rehearse uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then we typically have concerts Thursday, Friday, either evening or afternoon, and Saturday evening, um, once in a while, a concert on Sunday afternoon, occasionally a concert on t- Tuesday evening. And so our weekend is usually Sunday and Monday. Okay. It's a very irregular schedule, and it's a very compact schedule, especially um, coming from our experience in school. You would rehearse a piece of music for a month before you would perform it with a conservatory orchestra. And here we rehearse, start rehearsing on Tuesday, and we're performing Thursday night. You have very quick turnarounds for your programs. You really yeah. do. So that's one of the things about being a professional musician that's different from being an amateur musician. You have to come to the first rehearsal knowing how to play your part already. You're not learning the piece at the rehearsal. You're ready to go, and we're just doing last-minute polishing when we start our first rehearsal on Tuesday. And you spend summers in Ravinia. Yes. And that goes back way back. And CSO is really the staple of Ravinia and really 
the big reason why a lot of people go and enjoy. They, they still like to call the Chicago Symphony the crown jewel of Ravinia. And we feel like we have a really important presence there um, that even as many people are becoming more and more familiar with Ravinia as a destination for popular programs, um, that's really exploded in the time that we've been in the orchestra. Um, but the concerts that we get to do out at Ravinia, and that's an even trickier situation because there we don't do the same program three nights in a row. We will play three nights in a wow. row and do a completely different program every night. Mm. So we have even less rehearsal time. Uh, Typically one and a half rehearsals to put together a concert at Ravinia. Wow. So it's, um, it's, it's you know, it, it's high pressure and the music is in, the music is out. It's kind of, yeah. it, there's there's a lot of adrenaline involved in sure. getting that sure. stuff out Keeps on Keeps things interesting, right? Yeah. No chance to get bored. Yeah. No. So let's talk about, you know, classical music is an acquired taste. You grew up in your family with it. They played it at home, so you were exposed to that. A lot of people have not been. So you guys both do outreach to people. Um, how do you bring... Uh, classical music maybe into the next generation, uh, maybe into the pop culture genre, and kind of expose it to to people who may not have been exposed as a child or even in high school? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I do think that it is regarded almost universally as an acquired taste. Um, I That has not been my experience, though. Hmm. I think that if somebody has an open heart and an open mind and they hear a great performance of great classical music... It isn't like they need a lot of preparation. I think that the reason this music still exists, that we're still playing music by people that lived centuries ago, is because it speaks directly to the human heart. And I think, if, as I say, if you come into it open to a new experience, um, you don't need a lot of um, you know, preparation, and this is what you should listen, and this is how you should listen. Um, I really believe in this music, and I really believe it speaks for itself. Um, one, one thing I've done is I've... I've for years, been in a string quartet that goes to schools all over the Chicago area. I've gotten to know the city quite well geographically because you never know where you're going to end up. And like one thing I do early in the show is I, I do a, we we do a sort of experiment where I play a very tragic piece, a, a Schubert quartet that's known as the Death and the Maiden Quartet. And I say this was originally a song, as it was, it was based on a song that Schubert wrote. And I say that you know the song is in German, you wouldn't have understood it anyway if you heard the words. But without telling you a word about what the song is, we're just going to play the opening of this, and I want you to tell me, how does this make you feel? What story do you think this is telling? What emotions is it meant to... And it doesn't matter where we are, on the west side, on the northwest side, on the in Englewood, kids immediately, oh, it sounds like somebody died. It sounds like... And just, I mean, think, think about what a miracle that is. Nobody's saying a word. There's these four pieces of wood with bows going against it, and we create this atmosphere without a word being said of what they're supposed to feel. And they get it. They get it immediately. And so um, that, that is one thing that I try to do is to say, no, this is not something that um, is only for people of a certain socioeconomic um, background. It was mostly created in Europe, but it's gone all over the world for a reason. Um, the other thing I will say is that I think it's like... Um, Anything else, if you have some hands-on experience doing it, that's a huge leg up. And I really encourage kids to sing in a choir, play some instrument. If you have some hands-on experience, it doesn't have to be classical music. It can be any kind of music. But if you have the actual experience of what it's like to create music, especially collaborating with other people, then I think you've got a huge leg up to um, deriving joy from this incredible music we play. The truth is... 
People do know classical music. They hear it all around them. They're just not really aware of it. They hear it in movie scores. They hear it in TV shows. They hear it in commercials. Uh, they recognize a lot of the music that we play. But there are a couple of things that, um, habits that have developed over the years that work against us a little bit. Uh, one of them is the concert hall etiquette yes. that we have. And uh, people think of classical music as being very stuffy because they're expected to sit in the audience and be completely still and completely silent and not react to the music at all. And they'll get shushed if they make any kind of a noise. And there is a reason for it. We always say that our music is uh, an art form that is painted on a canvas of silence. And that silence can be just as much a part of our art as the, the sound itself um, so we do like to have that really clean palette to, to paint our music on. But the fact that it's become so ritualized that people feel like they can't enjoy it, they have to be on their best behavior, a, a lot of people just aren't comfortable in that environment. And we would, to some extent, like to encourage people to feel free to react the way that they want to. And one of the things that was fun for us, we just played a concert out in Cicero, at Morton East High School in the Chodal Auditorium. And there you have an audience that is less bound by those strictures of yeah. concert hall behavior. And they were applauding after each movement and they seemed really relaxed, really enjoying uh, what we were doing. And we enjoy that when we can tell our audience is enjoying yeah. it too. I think it's great that you get out in the community. You bring the music to the community rather than them having to come here, which usually isn't accessible to everyone. It's difficult, and Max also raised a great point about the fact that it's so important for people to have hands-on experience themselves. And I think about the change from when I was in school and these music programs were very present back in the 70s. Um, schools have cut a lot of music yes. programs, and many of the programs that do exist now, uh, thanks to the advent of the electronic instruments that we developed in the 50s and 60s, um, people are able to learn guitar or electric bass or drums or keyboard and you've got four people and you've got a band as opposed to you know we've got a dozen and a half different kinds of instruments on stage in a symphony orchestra so it definitely takes more resources to put together uh, this kind of music especially on the scale of a symphony orchestra so one of the things that's most important to us is to make sure that young people are exposed to this and have the opportunity to get their hands on instruments themselves and play it um, Another um, perception of our music is that it's very European. It's written by a bunch of dead white men. <laughs> yeah. And th that does not certainly fit with the times today. And there's a reason why we still champion this music, not because it was written by Europeans or written by men, but because it's great. And we love it. And we want to share our love uh, for this music with as many people as possible. We're reaching out to communities that are underrepresented in the orchestra now uh, to make sure that they know that you don't see people on our stage who look like you, but that doesn't mean our music is not for you. And there are programs around the city that are trying to get young uh, minority students the opportunities to play acoustic instruments and classical music um, that I think is really going to be the key to preserving this for a, a future and more diverse generation. And we'll be back to continue our conversation from the Symphony Center after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? 
Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And you also offer holiday shows. You do music scores uh, from, uh, from movies, John Williams' work, things like that, to kind of you know, appeal to the masses, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a very fascinating thing that we've gotten into. They have the technology now to take some of the great films with great music and bleach out all of the instruments, all the, all the music, and then we sit live on stage with the film playing behind us yeah. and actually play the, the score, you know, by these great composers like John Williams or the great composers of the past like Elmer Bernstein. Um, and we... Um, and we do probably four or five of those a year. We're doing about four or five now, yeah. Um, I think Casablanca is coming up at some point, and that's a fantastic score. February. And yeah. you've also worked with rock stars, right? Didn't you do something with Sting or Trick or Dennis DeYoung? Uh, you we've had the band Chicago oh, come yes. in and perform with us. Mm-hmm. That's um, super. That's James cool. Taylor was here. Ooh, wonderful. Um, yeah. That's probably a thrill for you guys, too. Oh, sure. <laughs> it is a lot of fun because it gets us um, you know, out of our own comfort zone and this is music that we also enjoy, and yes. it's kind of fun to get to sort of incorporate um, our work with, uh, with just sort of our everyday life. Let's and talk about the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's also great to see completely different audiences in the hall. Of and, course, um, I was just going to talk yeah. about the evolution of the music and the evolution of the, of the audiences. What have you seen over the years? I think traditionally we think of, of the audience for classical music as being rather elderly, um, and being wealthy people coming and dressing up in their uh, white tie and tails and their fancy gowns. And um, we even still perform, the men in the orchestra wear white tie and tails, which is very formal. And my understanding is back when orchestras were really first uh, a thing, the way that they, they exist today was back in the late part of the 19th century, when many more people would wear white tie and tails for, for some occasions. Even um, members of the uh, more common classes would have formal wear because these were the traditions of the time. Those traditions have faded now, but we're still carrying this on. And one of the discussions that I'm sure we'll be having 
is whether it makes sense for us to still dress in a way that dates back 130 years. I would argue it doesn't. I think that <laughs> somebody who's uninitiated sees us looking like 19th century butlers and is thinking, boy, this is formal, this is weird, this has nothing to do with anything I've ever experienced in my life, and I'm not going to like it. And I wish we'd stop sending that message. I'm happy that people want to dress up when they go out for a night sure. on the town. Everybody feels good when they're when they're dressed He's nicely. He's over with the tuxes. But we, we do not enforce a, a strict dress code. No, yeah. Orchestra Hall, we have people coming yeah. in jeans, and, and there are lots of young people. They always talk about the, quote, aging of the classical music audience, unquote. And I have never seen that to be the case. I see so many young people. There are even companies that organize... Uh, tours for high school students to come from out of state and come to Chicago and do some fun big city things. And one of the things they'll do is come to Orchestra Hall. So there are nights when we'll come here and we'll see the lobby just filled with high school age students. And it's wonderful and they really enjoy it. If I can mention um, another radio station, WXRT, the great uh, disc jockey for so long there, the iconic um, Terry Hemmert. That's our sister station, so you're allowed. Okay. She <laughs> Terry's has a, wonderful. Oh, love her. She <laughs> has a, a series called Classical Encounters, ah. where um, she grew up in Ohio, not too far from you, uh, was a horn player, sang in a choir, absolutely adores classical music. And she has, as I say, this thing called Classical Encounters, where she brings, oh, a couple hundred or more people and they're right here in this ballroom before the concert, and she has guests. I'm sure you've done it. Um, I've done it as well. She talks about the music we're playing that night with um, with these people, and she always has some tie into rock music. And it's, since it's Terry, the Beatles always come up at some point. Of course. And um, it's something I just love doing is chatting with her about the music before the concert and seeing this audience that came here through WXRT. And um, it's um, it's a terrific audience, and it's a and there, it's people that. Otherwise, might not be here. And Probably. Oh, no, thank you, Terry. Yes. So you guys tour a lot. I'm sure you have seen the world because of this opportunity. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that experience and uh, really what it's meant to you, not only as a person, but as just as a musician, being able to do that. That's really been one of the greatest shocks that we've absorbed during the last two years. Uh, with yeah. the shutdown that we endured last year where we could not perform for live audiences, we were so thrilled to return to the concert hall with live audiences last May. Uh, but we have been unable to tour our last trip. Uh, we took a tour of Europe in January of 2020. And then we had a week in Florida where we can often find many of our Chicago patrons wintering. Snowbirds, um, yes. Exactly. We did a week down there in Florida. And that's the last travel that we've done with the orchestra since then. We're supposed to be in Asia right now, actually. That's right. We're, we would be on a tour in Asia right now. Oh. And that was just very quietly shelved. You mentioned May when you, what was that like? I mean, I've talked to a lot of people in the live performance industry about the last two years, and I like to hear about what it was like for you guys um, as musicians, as live performers, not able to do what you do, but then when you finally were able to, and that first audience, um, I think we're all realizing that we took arts and culture by, you know, for granted. And we, we realize now that we not only wanted it, but we do need it. And it's a really emotional experience yeah. when you have it back again in your life. That's so precise, precisely true, Lisa. Um, neither Max nor I is a young man. Uh, we've been in the business for a long time. And uh, it was so shocking to me First of all, when we couldn't perform concerts, we had a dress rehearsal for a concert on Thursday, March 12th, 2020. Yeah. And March 12th. that afternoon, yes. the governor said, we're shutting everything down. So we could not play that program. 
And it wasn't until uh, 14 months later that we were back in the hall. In the interim, we did have a lot of activities. First of all, we had individual members of the orchestra just recording themselves at home and putting videos up on their Facebook page. And then the Chicago Symphony actually organized a series of concerts that they called CSO Sessions, uh, where they every week would tape a chamber music concert uh, performed by musicians from the orchestra and then produce it very well and make it available online for streaming. And those are actually still available online. If you go to uh, CSO.org, you can find a link to the CSO TV page where you'll see a lot of these performances. I participated, I think, in seven of those over the course of the year. Did quite a few, I can't remember how many. And when we finally returned to a stage and heard applause when we came on the stage and heard applause after the performances, I was amazed how much I had missed that and how good it felt to hear that sound again, that we weren't just sort of playing into the void, but that there were people directly in the space with us reacting to what we were doing. And it was just nourishment for the soul. Absolutely. We feed each other as patrons. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, when you're playing... You're looking at the music, you're looking at the conductor. You're thinking about what you have to do. And yet there's this palpable spiritual quality about this congregation gathered around you, all experiencing this thing that you're creating together and all feeling it together. Without a word being said, without even your five senses taking them in in any way, it still just resonates in this in your soul, you know. And I didn't really understand that until I went without it for um, more than a year. Absolutely. So if we can go back to touring, let's talk about when you were able to tour. Tell me some of your most exciting places that you were able to visit and kind of the coolest experiences you had, I guess, abroad uh, being part of the CSO. I think the CSO has performed on five continents and Max has performed on all five of those. I I missed out on Australia because that that tour tour. happened just before (laughs) I joined the orchestra. But uh, we used to have very regular uh, appearances in Europe. We would be there when Daniel Barenboim was music director. We were there every single year. Uh, we would make a trip to Europe. Um, Asia was uh, less frequent uh, when I first joined the orchestra in the early 90s, but it has become much more frequent. And now we're kind of on a cycle of doing a European tour every three years, an Asia tour every three years, um, and then maybe something else. We went to South America with Daniel Barenboim in 2000. Uh, as I said, the orchestra went to Australia with Sir George Schulte back in the late 80s. Um, and we've been to a lot of the same places over and over again, but then there are always cities that we've not been to before. We had to cancel a tour in the summer of 2020 that was going to take us to Riga, Latvia for our first performances uh-huh. there. And uh, there are some festivals that we perform at in Salzburg and in Lucerne. And uh, one of the funnest ones, though, I think every member of the orchestra will say, is to play um, at the Royal Albert Hall in London during their Proms Festival. 
um, because it's a venue unlike any other. I think it seats probably about 4,000 people and then another 1,000 or so that are standing on the main floor. It was originally an equestrian. Um, it was for like horse shows <laughs> like back in the 19th century. And uh, yeah, the, the, it's, there's no audience like it. It's like the, imagine you know, the, the craziest sports fan you ever saw and then amp it up a few. Wow. And they stand through the whole concert. There's a yeah. whole massive main floor. And they organize these chants, and they're, um, they're absolutely nuts. And so totally different than American oh, audiences? Yeah. Yes. And, um, yeah, that, that, that's a great one. <laughs> and then, of course, I think the other place that uh, every single member of the orchestra loves performing is at the Musikverein in Vienna, mm. which is a concert hall that was built not too long before orchestra hall was built, but it is just done in very high uh, imperial style, lots and lots of mirrors and gold, and it's just a perfect little jewel box of a hall. Um, and it, there's so much tradition there. If anyone's ever seen the New Year's Day performances by the Vienna Philharmonic that are usually broadcast on public television, you've seen this space. And I remember my first time sitting on that stage and just looking up, and I had to pinch myself. Um, not only is it visually absolutely stunning, the sound is just the best sound of any space in the world, and every time we go there, you know exactly how the orchestra sounds. You're not having to overcome any of the shortcomings of the space. And the history there, Gustav Mahler was you know, conducted there, and Strauss, and it's like um, maybe the old Yankee Stadium or something for, um, for, for music. And you know, the whole city of Vienna, I mean, so much of our music came out of there, so much of the greatest music that we play came out of there. Uh, Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms and um, and you walk around the city and you think yeah that's where Mozart probably had lunch over there and maybe Beethoven got into an argument over there I mean it's <laughs> it's just you're just living it and it this and it's all the buildings that were there when they were when they were alive it's 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 a living museum. Do you pinch yourself every day when you think about what you do for a living? Do you go to parties and people say what do you do for a living and you say I'm a musician for the CSO. It makes you a very interesting person right away. Do people want to talk to you more about it, just like me? Oh, I, I don't know. It goes back and forth. Uh, some people are, you know, just, boy, I don't know anything about that. I better talk to somebody else. You know? I don't think so. But um, <laughs> I, I mainly pinch myself because um, when I was a kid, what I loved to do was play, do what I'm doing now. And I mean, how many people can make a living doing what they've loved ever since they knew it existed? I mean, that, that, that to me is the real... And travel the world yeah. doing it. Yeah, and the incredible good fortune. It really is an incredible privilege to perform with a group of musicians uh, like we have here in Chicago. It's, um, it's recognized in the classical music world as one of the top orchestras in the world. Um, actually, there's a classical music magazine out of the UK called Gramophone Magazine, and they had the temerity to do a survey of all of their uh, classical music critics and reviewers, which are the best orchestras in the world. The Chicago Symphony came in at number five on that list. So we were all running around the hall saying, yeah, we're number five, we're number five. Uh, I would was, argue you're number one, It right? was the top American orchestra, and, and Chicago Symphony is usually spoken of along with the Berlin Philharmonic and the Vienna Philharmonic as really uh, top orchestras in the world. The London Symphony also quite excellent, the Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam. Uh, those are the other four orchestras that were above yeah. us on the list, by the way. But it's very prestigious for us just to have gotten in here. And it certainly involved a lot of hard work to train ourselves to play our instruments well, to learn about music. 
uh, there's also a certain element of luck that you just played well on the day that you had your audition and uh, you were the lucky one that got picked. And so I think each of us remembers every day that we're, we're just so lucky to be on this stage and working with this group of musicians, working with a music director like Ricardo Muti. Um, it's very easy to take that for granted because I've done it for nearly 30 years now. And when you've done something for that long, it's, it's easy to kind of uh, not think about that. But um, sitting on that stage and looking out is a real reminder of uh, what a wonderful way it is to make a living. I always say it beats having a real job. <laughs> Absolutely. And well, I bet, oh, go ahead. you know, nowadays, especially, um, music is the one thing that does unite us. And I'm sure you guys have realized that too, as well. When we're all in a concert hall or at a you know a stage watching a rock concert, or even you guys, um, it's the one time that we can all have one thing in common and not argue about whatever, you know, politics or religion or whatever's going on. You know, it really it's it's a form of escape, but it's also a unification kind of. It model. is something, yeah, that speaks to our humanity, that goes at a much deeper level, even than the controversies and the politics that are tearing us apart now. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, wrap it up by saying uh, you've got a, a, fun, a couple of fun weeks coming up, and then you have your Ravinius Day. So tell me a little bit about what's going on for the next for this season here, and we'll go from there. What are some of the highlights coming up? We're doing Beethoven's Ninth, mm-hmm. the Great Ode to Joy. We've got that Casablanca coming up. We've got um, one of my favorite pieces coming up in the, um, I think at the very end of February, beginning of March, um, a piece by Berlioz called uh, Symphony Fantastique, which is um, an absolutely hallucinogenic. Um, <laughs> he was, um, well, Berlioz was either mad or a genius, depending on who was looking at him, but it's music that still, even though it was written in 1830, sounds absolutely, completely modern and in some ways crazy and in some ways absolutely gorgeous. Can you think of any, Bill? Any? Well, we're really covering a huge range. Uh, if this is airing uh, a week from today, as I think it is, yes. um, the program that we'll be doing that week is all music from the Baroque period, uh, Vivaldi and Handel, uh, with smaller resources, fewer musicians from the orchestra performing. Uh, the things that I always look forward to are the ones that take enormous amounts of musicians. We're doing Richard Strauss's tone poem, A Hero's Life, Ein Heldenleben, later this season. We'll be doing Mahler's Sixth Symphony, which is a massive 90-minute long work that just leaves you completely depleted at the end of it. Um, And then we'll be doing a program of all 20th century music with conductor Esapekka Salonen uh, coming up in June. So there's really something for everybody. And if you're familiar with classical music, you'll find something you haven't heard before. If you're not familiar, you're going to find something that's very easy for you to have as an introduction to this type of music. My last question is, it's almost obvious, but what kind of impact has the CSO had on the arts and culture community in Chicago? I mean, we've, you know, as far as the theater district, we've become, you know, second to none to New York, and that was an evolution over the last probably 10, 20 years. We get pre-Broadway shows before they go to New York, and but you guys were, you know, doing it way before that. So kind of talk to me about um, how, you know, it's really made an impact here and what we can, you know, expect in the future. You know, I got here when uh, Sir George Schulte, was the music director. And, you know, Chicago had sort of this inferiority complex um, almost in the days of Al Capone. You know, you used to go, say you're from Chicago and people would mimic a a submachine gun. And then um, in the 60s, there was that um, horrendous uh, Democratic National Convention of 1968. There was the Cubs collapse. And, you know, in the 69 when the Mets beat them. 
and Chicago thought of themselves as like a, 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 almost like a punchline. And then in the 1970s, George Schulte took the Chicago Symphony on a European tour where people stood and applauded and screamed for a half hour after the concert. They just finally just had to leave the stage with people still clapping. And Time Magazine declared us the world's greatest orchestra. And I remember like taking a cab ride when I first got in the orchestra and asking to go to Orchestra Hall. And that was back in the days when the cab drivers tended to be from the um, you know, Polish and Irish parishes around the city. And um, the guy dropped me off at Orchestra Hall and he looks at me and he says, the Chicago Symphony plays there. They're the best orchestra in the world. Yeah. They're better than New York. <laughs> and, right you know, and I think that that is one thing that we have really um, are very happy to have provided for the city is a point of pride. Is something that is absolutely world class that we have to take a backseat to no one. And I think it is something that oh, a lot of Chicagoans see as part of their self-image as Chicagoans that um, is, is a banner we're very happy to hold up. Bragging rights. Lead led the way. And on a more practical level, there are many of the musicians, musicians in the orchestra who teach at the local music schools at Northwestern, at DePaul University, at Roosevelt University. Um, their work as teachers has drawn a large number of students to Chicago, many of whom end up staying in Chicago. So uh, just having this collection of great musicians draws other great musicians here, and those musicians then can really feed the smaller, more regional orchestras in the area, the freelance orchestras. There's so much classical music in Chicago, and a lot of it just wouldn't be here if it weren't for the gravity of an institution like the Chicago Symphony. Absolutely, and it, you're passing the baton to the next generation eventually, and that's important as well. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, thank you so much. I wish you luck in your upcoming season, and uh, you live a wonderful life making music, that's for sure. Thank you, thank you for joining so us. For us. It's Lisa. been a pleasure. Bill Bookman and Max Ramey, thank you so much. Next week on Backstage Chicago, we hoof our way to the Chicago Tap Theater, one of the most critically acclaimed dance companies in the city, as they return to live performances after nearly two years. We'll talk to its director about the art of tap, its origins, and the young dancers who make the magic on stage. Listen and subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. 
Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Hey. 